One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Kevin Milan. Kevin advised Gustav Wrangel in the construction of a flotilla of ships, which enabled the Swede to raid previously untouched island riches in Lake Constance. Good job, Kevin. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 79 of the 30 Years' War. That's right, we're nearly there, but there's still a few loose ends to tie up. Last time, we worked through the year of 1646. More specifically, we examined the Swedes and the French, and assessed their campaigns for satisfaction in the negotiations at Westphalia. For France, it was Alsace, and they were challenged by the Emperor, the Spanish, and the Alsatians themselves. For the Swedes, it was Pomerania, and the challenges came from the stubborn and ambitious Great Elector of Brandenburg, Frederick William. In both cases, though, the two powers that achieved satisfaction. By the first week of February 1647, Sweden had concluded its agreement to partition Pomerania with Brandenburg, and France had concluded its treaty, which remained unsigned, with the Emperor. Both powers, in addition to the Dutch, who were just about to make a truce with Spain, seemed ready for the war to end. But the war retained some surprises. Above all, in the French case, these were to be delivered by Bavaria. We've heard a great deal about Maximilian of Bavaria, and he has appeared in our story consistently since episode 4, if you can believe that. Maximilian's staying power was second to none, and in this episode we're going to examine his fortunes, not merely in the war itself, but also in his campaign to get the French on side. Could Bavaria be saved from disaster, but still retain its friendship with the Emperor? Maximilian thought so, and he was willing to use all means at his disposal to reach it. All the while the threat of military invasion by the Swedes, a scene visited upon Bavaria in 1632, which Maximilian had not soon forgotten, loomed over his head. Doing all he could to avoid it, while somehow keeping his gains, seemed attainable only through a controversial truce with Sweden and France, brokered by the French. Above all, though, Maximilian was eager to the point of desperate to hold on to his Palatinate, in other words, the lands he had taken from his distant, rebellious relative, Frederick V, if we remember him, in the opening months of this war. Comeuppance, indeed, had been a long time coming, for Maximilian knew there were many who wished to see him get away with it, but the question was, could he balance the hostility with the opportunism of his rivals and come out unscathed? Well, let's find out, history friends, as we take you to the story of perhaps the most fascinating character of the war, and certainly 
the most enduring. When Maximilian took over from his father in 1597 as the Duke of Bavaria, he began a reign which was destined to be unlike anything the people of Bavaria or his contemporary rulers in Germany had ever seen. By the end of his life in 1651, Maximilian had transformed not just the reach of Bavaria, expanding its writ into his cousin's Palatine lands, but even his own personal title and the imperial hierarchy would be reimagined with Bavaria as one of eight electors. What Maximilian achieved during his tenure and what he experienced was nothing short of astounding. He was among a very small group of contemporaries to live through the full duration of the Thirty Years' War. But by the time that conflict had begun, Maximilian had already been in power for more than 20 years. In that time, he had given an indication of his abilities by repairing the damage his father had inflicted on Bavaria. And what an amount of damage it was. Maximilian had inherited one of the most indebted states in Germany. His father had been nearly one and a half million guilders in debt by 1595, had only barely enough to spare for Maximilian's wedding, had been close to pawning the family jewels, and was being advised to declare bankruptcy. Rather than face the music, Maximilian's father determined to abdicate and put the reins of government in his son's hands, and it was probably the best decision he ever made. Maximilian had been learning under his father for two years, and by October 1597, he was declared Bavaria's sole ruling duke. The Bavarian estates, whom he would have to petition for the payment of these extraordinary debts, had never been consulted about any of these decisions. Through sheer determination and with a vision for balancing the books, Maximilian spent the next ten years squeezing the estates for additional incomes to reduce the debt. Through his own frugal living, exhaustive piety and sensible, if dogmatic, governance, the estates were gradually made to see that their duke was a reliable investment. Nor was his absolutist hand solely involved in finance, as the historian F. L. Karsten observed. Maximilian exercised judicial and police authority without any interference and without being unduly hampered by the privileges of the nobility, who only exercised the lower jurisdiction on their estates. He controlled the church, curtailed the jurisdiction of the bishops, intervened in its internal affairs, regulated religious festivals and processions, introduced the Roman rites, supervised the financial administration of the church, and taxed the clergy and the monasteries. Aside from his financial acumen, Maximilian's piety distinguished him even in the era of Counter-Reformation as a uniquely rigorous son of the church. He made the Virgin the patron of Bavaria in 1616 and dedicated himself to her through a vow which he wrote in his own blood and which he displayed proudly in a tabernacle at the Shrine of Altotting in 1645. His piety was a lifelong exercise and as a leader and financier of the Catholic League, he had also served as the Emperor's main military ally during the initial years of the war. Though his service to the emperor and patron were presented in noble terms, Maximilian was among the most handsomely rewarded of all the emperor's allies. And he was also among the shortlist of German potentates who could afford to shoulder the burdens which Ferdinand II's war against his enemies required. Absolutist in his control of the church, Maximilian's authority over Bavarian finances was equally absolute from the very beginning. 
he controlled everything from the right to extend monopolies, including the lucrative salt monopoly, to the right to levy or increase tolls and duties. He viewed the estates not as an early example of a representative body, but as a tool which he could use to raise finances and thus raise Bavaria's standing. Just as remarkable as his ability to squeeze the estates was the estates' apparent willingness to cooperate. By 1605, Maximilian's debts were reduced to 1 million guilders. By 1608, they disappeared. And by 1629, Maximilian had a surplus of more than 2 million guilders. All the while, the Bavarian estates remained supplicant. In 1605, they granted him monies for six years, and in 1612, when Maximilian informed them he would not call on them for nine years, they granted him the funds regardless. In return for a vague promise that he would not take advantage of their cooperation to levy additional burdens, in 1605, the estates essentially agreed to back their duke to the hilt. They increased his personal allowance from 50 to 150,000 guilders, they advanced 28,000 guilders for the maintenance of the Catholic League, and in 1607, when Maximilian annexed the free city of Donauwörth, his estates willingly provided the 16,000 guilders necessary to finance the policy. Evidently, the Bavarian nobility and their estates had been in search of a strong-willed, determined duke, but as a result of their support, Maximilian found that he needed them less and less. By virtue of his huge surplus and absolutist control over the country, Maximilian was able to intervene in the initial years of the conflict and fulfil his ambitions in the process. As F. L. Karsten continued, Maximilian did not consult the estates about the conclusion of alliances, nor about the declaration of war, and allowed them no influence in the sphere of administration and government. He was determined to govern himself, and was his own first minister. Maximilian needed no Richelieu, no Olivares, no Oxenstierna. He was determined to control Bavarian affairs wholly by himself. His intentions do not seem to have been based on the pursuit of power for power's sake either. In 1623, Maximilian was confirmed as the elector of Bavaria, having received the titles and honours of his distant rebellious cousin, Frederick V, the elector palatine who was then living in exile in The Hague. We've already examined the inflammatory results of this policy because it effectively kept the conflict alive long after Frederick V and Ferdinand II had died, and in the final years of the war, this Palatine question presented arguably the most intractable problem of the Peace Congress. Frederick V's son and heir Charles Louis, or Germanized as Karl Ludwig, had been tireless in his petitioning for Palatine justice since the death of his father in 1632. Charles Louis was defeated in battle in 1638 and was even imprisoned by Richelieu in 1639. But a decade later, Charles Louis's Palatine question still required an answer, and depending on whom one asked, the answer would be very different at Westphalia. An important point to note is that Maximilian did not justify his acquisition of the Palatine titles on the act of conquest alone. First and foremost, Frederick V had rebelled against his emperor and had the imperial ban invoked against him, thus forfeiting his position. In the second place, the relationship between the Palatine and Bavarian branches of the Wittelsbach dynasty was something akin to competition, particularly once the Palatine electors converted to Calvinism. 
But religion was not the only source of contention. Maximilian actually had good reason to cry foul of the Palatine's very possession of the electoral title. According to an agreement made between the two branches of the Wittelsbach families in 1329, Maximilian could note that the electoral title was supposed to be shared between them. The Palatine and Bavarian leaders, in other words, committed to taking turns in voting for the next emperor. This arrangement was overturned in 1356, when the Golden Bull established the framework for an emperor's election by detailing the seven electors. Bavaria wasn't among them, and since then, Bavarian dukes had been sensitive to the snub. As he balanced the budget and increased his prestige in the years before 1618, indeed, Maximilian had petitioned the emperor for reconsideration of this controversy. The eruption of the war plainly put such a debate on hold, but instead of waiting for a peaceful resolution, Maximilian sought to harness his prowess and opportunities, not to mention the weakness and isolation of his once triumphant palatine neighbour, to take what he believed was owed to him. Whether his contemporaries were convinced of the justice of this claim, which, don't forget, dated back 300 years to 1329, was another issue, and one which concerned Maximilian less than the actual fulfilment of his ambitions. However, it was precisely because the act of seizing the Palatine electoral title looked like a mere smash and grab that Maximilian was still seeking to legitimise his position more than 20 years later. He would have to buy off potential objectors to his new position at Westphalia in the mid-1640s, just as the Emperor had been forced to do so in Regensburg in 1623, when the announcement of the transfer of the titles had originally been made. In 1623, lest we forget, Saxony and Brandenburg had been appeased through concessions in land and titles, while papal envoys worked their magic, convincing those hesitant Catholic figures who remained. In 1646 and 47, though, Maximilian believed his best chances for coming out of the peace negotiations with his new titles and honours intact was through French support. The French negotiators at Münster, indeed, had privately promised the imperial delegate, Trotmansdorf, that they would intercede to moderate any Protestant demands made against Catholics. Interestingly, this promise seems to have been made in full expectation that it would lead to friction between France and Sweden. Yet, because France had been satisfied in their demands by September 1646, they felt less pressure afterwards to rely on Sweden and were more willing to turn their attentions towards the empire's religious settlement where the Palatine question was bound up. By February 1647, though, Sweden had also managed to satisfy its demands for Pomerania and other concessions, so its negotiators felt confident to focus their attentions on the empire's religious settlement as well. With their territorial demands satisfied, the Swedish and French delegates were to spend the remainder of 1647 working to bring some form of religious settlement to the table that all could agree on. The quest was easier said than done. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As the debates at Westphalia rolled on, so too did the military manoeuvres. 1646 brought few inspiring returns for either side, but the tide was turning against Emperor Ferdinand III. This meant that his allies, most of all Bavaria, became more vulnerable. Indeed, with the creeping French advance to the Upper Rhine and the seizure of much of Alsace, French forces were in an ideal position to raid into Swabian territory, territory which bordered the Bavarian heartland. This was a substantial enough problem, but when combined with the Swedish decision to link up with Marshal Turenne for the campaigning season of 1646, the consequences threatened to be disastrous. Field Marshal Gustav Wrangel, who had replaced the ailing Torstensen, marched his army further south than ever before, reaching as far as Lake Constance along the northern border with Switzerland in the autumn of that year. While he was there, Gustav Wrangel outmaneuvered his foes constructed a flotilla of boats on that picturesque lake, and stormed the island of Mainau, where previously untouched treasures resided. The mountain towns and passes gave way to the unexpected Swedish assaults, and among other successes, Wrangel wrested four million florins worth of booty from the city of Bregenz on the lake's eastern shore. The native Tyrolese soldiers and militia who had been called to defend their homeland melted away, and Wrangel spent much of early 1647 rampaging through the previously unspoiled western portion of the Tyrol. That Wrangel could force his way through these lands and evoke no response from the emperor was a telling fact for Maximilian. Wrangel was only a few days' march from Innsbruck, and a campaign into inner Austria might rouse the once rebellious Austrian estates into a repeat of their revolt, which had consumed much Habsburg attention in the late 1620s. Ferdinand III was plainly unable to stop the Swedes, and he was frankly unsure how to combat Wrangel's invasion, losing first his brother as commander, who resigned, and then losing the alcoholic veteran commander Matthias Gallus, who was brought back in desperation in early 1647, only to die in April. The prospects for imperial survival, let alone victory, appeared grim, and the Allies seemed poised to choke Bavaria in a pincer movement before moving against Vienna. So it was that Maximilian consented in December 1646 to negotiations for a truce with his enemies to begin. The Ulm Truce was signed in March 1647, 
a mere month after the Swedes had concluded their agreements for territorial satisfaction. With Bavaria's exit from the war, although it was not guaranteed to be permanent, not only had a watershed moment passed, as his traditional ally had finally abandoned him, but Emperor Ferdinand now had to face the fact that he was utterly alone against his enemies. Every other elector had removed himself from the war, leaving the Habsburg hereditary lands, and Bohemia in particular, open for invasion by Wrangel's Swedes once they marched through the Palatinate in order to get there. But Gustav Wrangel was not particularly pleased at the truce's arrival. He believed that the truce would only delay Maximilian's final defeat and grant him a chance to catch his breath. With the French and Swedes no longer bearing down on him, Maximilian might repair his defences, rebuild his army and be back on the field by the end of the year. Critics of Wrangel might have condemned these predictions as unrealistic or cynical in the extreme, but the Swedish field marshal proved correct. By August 1647, Maximilian would be back in the field. Just as he had resurrected his duchy's fortunes at the time of his ascension, now Maximilian sought to do so once more. This time, though, the results would be far less remarkable. In the interim, in this brief few months while Bavaria was at peace with its rivals, it was the French who gained the most. Cardinal Mazarin was surprisingly risk-averse and didn't want to gamble on the continued predominance of French arms over the Bavarians, particularly when France had been burned in previous campaigns. Rather than risk it all in a campaign to achieve better terms, Mazarin was content to settle for terms which were positive now while the enemy was on the back foot. Cardinal Mazarin expressed these points in communications with Claude Davout, the French delegate at Münster, saying, It is no small skill to quit the game when one is winning, because one secures one's gains and one can count that which remains among one's possessions. In the name of God, work for this with all your ability. Mazarin didn't ignore France's superiority, but rather than harness the superiority to undo his foes, Mazarin noted that he was ready to sacrifice not only our hopes for future conquest, but even to cede a part of what we already have. The Ulm truce was a symptom of this approach, and it was fed by a lack of proper military intelligence on the ground in southern Germany, not to mention the fear that the cyclical patterns of military reversals could place France in a difficult position. These difficulties were especially pronounced because around this time, France suffered several successive setbacks in its war with Spain along the Pyrenees. Even as Naples and Sicily seemed poised to leave Spain's orbit for good, the Spanish army managed to dislodge the French from some Catalonian bases, and Mazarin was beginning to tire of Catalonia altogether. French efforts to capitalise on Spain's Italian troubles failed miserably thanks to poor planning and Mazarin's total surprise. By spring 1648, those regions were back under Spanish control and the opportunity to strike a blow at Madrid in yet another theatre had been lost. The French also seemed to have missed some opportunities at Munster. They were unable to fight successfully for the rebellious Portuguese to gain recognition by the Spanish as anything more than rebels, while the Spanish launched a propaganda campaign of their own, accusing the French of dealing in bad faith and having no interest in a lasting peace. Even the Portuguese, as it happens, lobbed some criticism France's way in this regard. 
The French delegation, it would be fair to say, seemed to have underestimated their Spanish counterparts, who had done enough research about the other delegations to appreciate how to get on their good side. As always, we turn to the Venetians, and the Venetian ambassador represented a country which was at war with the Ottomans and was supposed to be serving as a mediator. The Spanish thus loudly proclaimed that they would send military aid in support of Venice, which seemed to have moved the Venetian delegate to become considerably more pro-Spanish in his sympathies. In the military sphere, furthermore, the arrival of a truce between the Spanish and Dutch liberated the army of Flanders after 80 years of conflict and enabled its commander, Ferdinand's brother, the Archduke Leopold William, to focus his attentions on Marshal Turenne. And Cardinal Mazarin had yet another very good reason to feel apprehensive about continuing the war indefinitely. His gamble that French society would support the crippling taxes to fund the war long enough to pay for worthwhile successes against Spain had failed. By May 1648, the domestic woes within France were erupting into the mainstream and affecting Mazarin's ability to pursue the war against the emperor. Perhaps in anticipation of this threat, Mazarin approached the peace negotiations more willing to compromise than we might expect, especially once France's major goals in Alsace had been granted. For all of these weaknesses and shortcomings, though, the scales had long since been set against Madrid. Although the strain on France was beginning to show, King Philip IV of Spain couldn't prevent his own royal courtiers from speaking their mind about the desperate state of the country. One such courtier wrote in the safety of his private memoirs that, The only place where the war was carried on with activity was here in Castile, and that in a most unheard-of way, by disarming subjects and divesting them of their property on the pretext of the war. Even the treasury warrants, which had been especially exempt from deduction, were again seized and forced to yield a half. When those who had to pay were advised not to do so, because whilst the war lasted so long, would the government cut their purses and would soon take everything, a certain person asked, Why do they give habits of knighthood? Because they are in cloth, was the reply. Why do they give keys? In other words, the office of Chamberlain. Because they are iron. Why do they give titles? Because they are air. Why do they not give money? Because that is the essence and substance of everything, and they do not wish anyone to have it. God save us from him who is liberal to vice and stingy to virtue, for the only people who are now comfortable and placed aloft are concubines and the women who look after them, low and common women, and those men who have been base enough to marry them. Such plain speaking among Philip IV's own servants underlined the fact that Spain's decline was an open fact by the late 1640s, notwithstanding the last-minute rallies which our armed forces occasionally enjoyed. The war was turning broadly, and in some cases gradually, against the whole Habsburg dynasty, but it had unmistakably turned against them by now, and there were few in Madrid or Vienna that imagined victory to be possible. Emperor Ferdinand's primary goal, indeed, was to avoid any further campaigning seasons out of fear of the consequences. These fears over what might befall his hereditary lands were well-founded, as Wrangel crossed into northwest Bohemia in the early summer of 1647 with reinforcements from Silesia. Armed not just with a formidable force of veterans, but also with a concrete plan to keep them provisioned and potent during the slim campaigning months, Gustav Wrangel conceived of nothing less than the ruin of the emperor. Interestingly, though, 
much as Bavaria's truce saved Maximilian, it also saved the Emperor from either having to rush to Bavaria's defence or having to distribute soldiers to cover that flank. Bavaria, once an ally, could now be used as a buffer state against the French and Swedish ravages, and the Emperor could focus on preparing Austria and Bohemia for the campaign which was to come. Tasked with defending what remained of the Emperor's realm was Gallus's successor as commander of Imperial forces, Count Peter Melander. Melander had at his disposal 20,000 soldiers. These were the remnants of the Emperor's military arm in Germany, but he also had been led to hope that Bavaria's inactive army of nearly equal size might join him in some great defection. A curious scene followed, whereby some soldiers on the Bavarian side attempted to join their disenchanted commanders and defect to the Emperor, but this brought few returns. Maximilian even went as far as putting a price of 10,000 thalers on the head of Jan van Werth, his army's commanding officer, who had attempted to defect to the Emperor's army owing to his discontentment with the Ulm truce. Melander waited in vain for Bavarian support, setting out late in August 1647 to meet Wrangel's army. In a minor skirmish on the 22nd of August, Melander surprised Wrangel at his camp and inflicted around 1,300 casualties. Wrangel withdrew in good order and little practically changed in the region, but the win was a vital one for the Emperor and he tried to use it to his advantage. As Melander had marched to meet Gustav Wrangel, back along the Rhine, Marshal Turenne had set his sights upon Luxembourg, yet another link in the chain that tied Madrid to Brussels. Turenne intended to bring his army to that duchy as a means of intercepting Leopold William's army of Flanders, which was now granted greater freedom of action after the Dutch truce. The own truce also granted Turenne an opportunity, because Maximilian would not be sending any sorties across the Rhine for the foreseeable future. Something which Turenne had absolutely not foreseen, however, was the inclination of his soldiers. Many of the Germans under his command were content only to campaign in Germany, and when rumours were put about that Turenne intended to march them to Catalonia to fight Mazarin's Spanish War, it seemed, for many, to be the final straw. Some of his best German troops, many of them veterans of Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar, fled from Turenne's command and made their way to another Swedish commander at Westphalia. It was an unexpected and potentially fatal reversal which few could have imagined, but the Swedish Chancellor may well have viewed the incident as poetic justice for Cardinal Richelieu's purchase of Bernhard's men a decade before. Turenne's uninspiring returns, combined with Melander's unexpected though minor victory, seem to have persuaded Maximilian to engage in a stunning 180 in policy. On the 7th of September 1647, he announced Bavaria would re-enter the war, but this time only against Sweden. It was a bold move, and for a moment it seemed the elector of Bavaria had done it again, harnessing just the right combination of opportunism, ambition and perception to have his way. But the initial optimism didn't last the year. Compelled to focus on reaching a settlement in the empire thanks to the increasing pressure of those aforementioned fronts, Cardinal Mazarin was unwilling to allow another year to go to waste. 1648 would either be the year when France extricated herself from the war for good, or would be the occasion when the wily Cardinal's sins finally caught up to him. Either way, Cardinal Mazarin was determined that no power, least of all Maximilian of Bavaria, 
should be permitted to stand in his way. And we will continue this story of this unending struggle, history friends, in the next episode. So I hope you'll join me then. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. If you're wondering, we are in the final throes of our PhD. And as long as the 30 Years War has lasted, I feel like the PhD has lasted even longer. But I really appreciate your messages of support and your actual financial support, which has enabled me through Patreon to keep going. Honestly, it's just been fantastic to see you guys support me in this way, and I couldn't ask for a better group of history friends. I do, you will be interested to know, have a lot of plans once the PhD starts to wind down. And it will be winding down in the end of September once I hand this Whopper thesis in. Things will then hopefully relax a little bit, but I'll still have to prepare for my Viva, where I try not to crap my pants as I defend my findings in front of a panel of four experts. But that probably won't happen until Christmas of this year or shortly thereafter. So hopefully in the interim, I'll find something to hand you guys, because yes, the 30 Years War series is nearly over. We have 82 episodes altogether, and this is episode 79, so... Sorry to break the fourth wall, but we're nearly there. It is, of course, quite satisfying and exciting that we have reached the end, but yeah, it's the end of an era, really. But it's also the success of my plans, because when I was starting the 30 Years War series all those years ago, I did it with an eye towards having content available for you while I was doing the PhD, and it's kind of poetic that both things almost come to an end at the same time. Anyway, that's just a short update on how I'm doing. I hope you're doing well too, and that you'll keep an eye out for a special episode I'll be doing with Tom Daly, where we basically rant about how messed up the world is. So keep an eye out for that. My name is Zach, soon to be Dr. Zach. Oh yes, it's going to happen, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.